Hello and welcome to The Good, The Bad and The Advertising, the show where we ask, if the world were our client, what would the brief be? I'm joined by my co-host, Dino Myers-Lamptey, as well as a special guest, Lou Nylander. Lou is a digital marketing guru with over 15 years of experience. She's also a trusted advisor to the Good Leap team and a fierce advocate for supporting women in business. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, let's get stuck in. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about algorithmic bias, which sounds pretty meaty, but I'm going to start at the beginning. I googled what is an algorithm and Google told me that it is a process through which computers use historical data to make predictions about the future. So let's say, for example, you feed a computer a ton of historical data about people who left prison and then either rehabilitated or reoffended. The algorithm will chew through all of this historical data and start to spot patterns. Let's say the computer finds that individuals with a supportive family network are less likely to reoffend. These patterns then allow the machine to start making predictions about future prison leavers. But much like the society it reflects, this data is far from perfect. There are a load of complex socioeconomic reasons why someone might or might not have a supportive family network. So this life-changing decision, this decision about someone's freedom, it may be a weighted dice. In fact, ProPublica reported that a criminal justice algorithm used in Florida mislabeled African-American defendants as high risk at nearly twice the rate it mislabeled white defendants. So the sausage is only as good as the meat you pump into it. If your sausage meat is racist or if the foundations of your sausage factory are built on the patriarchy, chances are your sausages aren't going to be very good at predicting reoffending rates. The problem, of course, is that the algorithms and the people who use them have a huge amount of power. They decide who gets jobs, mortgages, credit cards. They decide who gets stopped and searched by the police. They decide who gets targeted with predatory payday loan ads. So thank God we're here to save the day, frankly. And um, I think we should start by thinking about the brief. Dino, how would you approach this challenge? It's a very interesting challenge. It's such a, a huge challenge because of the importance of which algorithms are having in our lives today. They are growing in importance, but also because the algorithm is designed by a select few people that I think ordinarily if you were to meet and engage with these select few, you'd find out that it did represent just a, a very narrow selection of people. And I think that algorithms are hyped up to, to be so much, to do so much. But in reality, AI tech is actually quite basic in a sense, and it's making basic mistakes as well. Um, errors in judgment that just shouldn't really be there. But uh, I think this comes from the lack of um, of diversity in the maker, really. The lack of mm. diversity in the maker. That, that actually also the the idea that the maker doesn't um, is not even uh, conscious of the fact that they might be getting it wrong, or they might not necessarily know what every human being is like, or what is fair. Let's say, let's say what's fair. Ultimately, algorithms they're just equations, aren't they? And you've just got to decide what the inputs are, and you know, in terms of what you're trying to get. And yes, you're trying to get to a an output that is right, that is good, that is reasonable. But um, if your inputs are distorted or uh, you've just got complete blind spots, then um, then it leads to you know, terrible kind of out outputs and consequences. And I think that the real challenge here is that when algorithms are made, even the people that make them don't necessarily completely understand them, I think. They mm. put in some variables that are, that are open to change and abuse, I guess, um, or distortion by 
let's say, the analysis of data. And if that data, which is, you know, the sausage in your meat analogy, is, um, is all coming from the same farm, let's say, or butcher, then it's going to be the same in the end, really. And it's not necessarily going to be the tastiest sausage in the world. So you've got to uh, <laughs> I diversify your... laboring this metaphor. <laughs> I, think, I think it needs to be laboured. I think, I think yeah, the, uh, yeah to, to get the best sausages, you've got to go far and wide and go to multiple farms and butchers. There we go. I'm loving all these sausage analogies too, and it's actually making me a bit hungry, to be honest, guys. <laughs> um, I think we both make amazing points. I think the thing for me that's really interesting about this this whole sort of uh, conundrum is the fact that the whole reason that we've sort of created these algorithms is because they're meant to be better than people. Because people are inherently biased, and, and some people it's unconscious, some people it is conscious. So the sort of the rational reasons for these computers making these like decisions are because they're meant to be, you know, fair, but fundamentally they're not. And I think that's the thing that I think needs to be brought to the forefront, because I'm not sure that the general public really understand that these algorithms are woven into everyday life and they don't really know how it affects them. This is something that's going on and is woven into whether you get a mortgage, whether you get insurance, you know, even your search results or what you see on Netflix in your feed. And nobody really seems to understand what's behind it all. But fundamentally, sort of, you know, back up what you were saying, Dino, it's not fair. It's not fair if, like, actually somebody who should be getting a mortgage isn't because of a computer. And they can't have a reasonable explanation as to why they've not got the mortgage, right? Like, to your point, Dino, we're building these systems and we don't even understand the decision-making processes because they're teaching themselves. So there's no ability to go back on a decision and look at the logical steps that led to the conclusion. It's a complete black box, which is entirely unfair. There's a great example of it going wrong, which was a very high profile with Steve Wozniak, who was one of the founders of Apple. When Apple invented their credit system, credit card or whatever, pay, Apple Pay thing, he applied for credit and you know, got 10 times the amount that his wife uh, was granted. But yet they have the exact same financial status in terms of they share bank accounts, everything, and um, they have the same income. So it just shows that you know, that was the, the proof in hand that actually it was biasing uh, towards, you know, towards in favor of men against women, which is really kind of quite worrying, really, when one of the original founders of a company finds out that his own company has, uh, has basically not got it, you know, does not understand fairness, um, and is distorting it in such a way. Baked sexism into their own credit score system. I was sort of looking at where bias in data comes from and thinking about when we're considering this brief, like what are the origins of it? And it seems to me that there's there's two sources of bias that we might want to address in this brief or, or, or think about. The first is where an algorithm is fed an unrepresentative or an unequal data set. So, you know, you have facial recognition training, which is fed primarily white male faces and then isn't able to recognize faces that don't fit that particular set of characteristics. And then the second type of bias is where the data is accurate, but it's reflecting a broken society, which is the, the, the slightly more worrying one, perhaps. Um, an example of this is the Amazon recruitment tool, where an algorithm looked at Amazon's recruitment in the past and then chewed through a load of CVs and basically got rid of all the women because the algorithm rightly came to the conclusion that Amazon doesn't hire many women. So could produce the correct answer based on the inherent 
bias within our society. So thinking about which of those we want to address or or whether it's both of them and it's more of an awareness and education piece might be a helpful way to think about where we want to focus this brief. Yeah, I think that I think they're inextricably linked, actually, Amy. I don't think you can address one without addressing the other. So Mm -hmm. because I think you have to go back to the historical data because the data is what this algorithm is making the decisions about. However, if you don't change the representation or actually like critique this data, so go through it and make sure that it makes sense. So I definitely think there's a link between the two and any type of campaign kind of needs to, to focus on both areas. For me, what I find quite interesting about this is you know we're we're talking about decisions and how it can be unfair but actually some of the things like actually just affect your day-to-day like life for me like I've got an iPhone I've actually had to take uh go and get an iPhone which is one of the lower models because the facial recognition element on the iPhone is so bad it doesn't recognize me so many times to the point where my mate the other day was like why do you have like an iPhone SE like what like Lou like you yeah like you're so retro what are you doing and I'm like no it's because I've got the fingerprint thing because for me it's quite triggering if I'm like trying to pay for something or trying to get to a tube or something and it's not working I don't know why but obviously like just because of some things that may have happened to me in the past like if I'm trying to pay for something and it's not working I automatically think the person thinks I don't have enough money etc etc so it's gotten to the point where I was like this is a problem for me this phone is actually causing a problem for me so I'm going to do something about it I think you know I think people would find that strange when I explained it to my mate like actually stop making fun of me it's not that I'm cheap it's actually that I cannot use this phone it doesn't work for me that's a problem you know it's not fair that technology is made with only a certain amount of people in mind and so that I can't have the latest iPhone and, you know, well, I can have it, but what's the point of having a phone that half the functionality doesn't work right for me? Do you know what I mean? So that's what I mean about like things being linked because it's like, it's about the representation of who's creating this, who's in the room when these algorithms are being put together or or when the testing happens as well. Because if I was in the room, I would have looked at it and been like, guys, I've done it 10 times now and it still doesn't recognize my face but I wasn't there and there weren't people like me there. And that's why this keeps happening. And then it's the historical data that, you know, obviously if it's never been tested on different colored faces or different people, then you're just using that historic subset and then just building and building on this, on this data that inherently is biased. So that's just an example of, um, you know, real life problems. Well, you've got to run us know how the code was made, how the algorithm was designed is is the really important thing because you just don't know which, you know, what the intention was. If it's all just kind of like this kind of big kind of black box with with no explanation as to what's gone into it. And I think that's the, the really interesting point here, which is algorithms are becoming so important in terms of how they're dictating and designing everything that should they be open source in a sense? Should they be out there for everyone to really analyze and see? I think that it's a bit like the Colonel's, you know, 12 secret spices, isn't it? In the KFC or whatever, you know, these kind of things have always been, all right, this is your USP, this is proprietary, this is, you know, the patent type stuff, you know, so we don't we don't release this to anyone else, it's our secret source, uh, which is kind of like fine, yeah, when it's chicken, exactly, when it's not putting people in prison or, or whatever, you know, as a result of it, or not, you know, not giving mortgages to people or loans. So, what are we trying to achieve in the future? Which I think is um, is a thing that the data of the past can only inform you as to the, the, the problems, let's say, and the, the shortfalls, but it doesn't give you the answers as to how you correct those shortfalls. 
you know, that's where kind of almost like creativity and people from different kind of backgrounds and experience, but also just that conversation needs to happen about, well, what does the, what does a good future look like? You know, what kind of society do we want? I think for me, it's almost like, um, as kind of Lou said, in terms of that kind of what goes into its stage and also the checking, the validation of it afterwards, before it goes out, before it goes on general release, it's got to be, hang on, this has been validated as well by um, society, the right part of society. But I think we're getting probably, some would say, dangerously towards a place where we're trying to get everyone to agree on what what fairness is, you know, and what, what the, you know, what is right and wrong, I guess. I like your suggestion of at least having open sourced or accessible assumptions within the data sets and within the algorithms so that we don't expect everyone to have a universal view of right and wrong or fairness, but we have universal access to the assumptions that are driving important decisions that affect our lives. So it feels like we want to either look at some sort of public lobbying or um, governance and and, a campaign focused on the industry and getting the industry to be held more accountable, or we want to focus on the general public and thinking about it more as an awareness and education campaign to, to kind of get people more engaged in this issue. You know what? I'm going to now say something again that's a little bit, you know, controversial. But I think it could be both, right? My issue is, is that doing them separately and looking at them in silos is actually part of the problem. Because these things permeate not just what's going on with the tech industry, but actually day-to-day normal Joe Public's life. Mm. But they don't understand it. So first, we need to educate Joe Public about what is actually going on with the data. Then we need to sort of get a public group of evangelists right that are gonna go and you know put the government to task and put these tech companies to task as well from my perspective the tech companies and the government are probably not going to do anything unless there's enough of a sort of a movement one could say um and i think we've seen that with sort of like um the european union and and sort of like gdpr and you know the ccpa in california and i think once there's a wider awareness of what's been going on with data. I had a friend that um, watched something on Netflix and called me up once. I, she called me up and it was like, she was like, Lou, Lou, have you got a minute? And I was like, yeah, this is in the middle of the global pandemic. She was like, I had no idea. I've, I've shut down Facebook. I've <laughs> shut down these things. Did you know what they were doing with our data? And I was like, darling, I've worked in this industry for 15 years. I know what they've been doing with the data. She was like, I had no clue. And I was like, yes, yeah, you're selling your data when you you go onto the platform. So it's up to you. It's like, do you want to use the platform? The platform is free, but you sell yourself. It's up to you, you know. And I just think now that there has been like a a more awareness, I think definitely the younger generations are are a a lot more savvy in terms of like what they're, you know, their use of data and what they're trading and some of them have chosen not to use certain platforms because of it etc I think there could be something in that and I also think like sounds horrible but not that I don't want to educate the older folk but I really feel like the younger generations like I've just seen it with how they're they're willing to protest they're willing to sort of challenge authority I feel like if we got them on side I think it could be amazing I am I love your optimism Lou but um, your faith in the people uh, leads me with some doubt about um, how impactful it potentially could be. But I love be. the people. <laughs> I love the people. I love the people. We love the people. But um, no, I mean, I, th- I think that in terms of, you know, when we look at it, uh, you know, just historically in terms of how difficult it is for people to make change happen as quickly as it needs to happen. For example, plastic bags, 
you know, plastic bags in supermarkets. You know, for how long did we know that, okay, it was just complete ridiculous amount of waste that was happening every time you went to the supermarket and you got a plastic bag. So it wasn't until the 5p charge was, in, you know, uh, initiated and made, made law that things dramatically changed. Uh, you know, sometimes you need a change in the system and design by authority uh, to actually make things really happen. And I see algorithms, you know, we're not considering them to be damaging people's health and well-being. But say, for example, if it is food, if you're going to stock something in a super, you're going to sell anything, you have to make sure that, you know, food standards have to be involved have to make sure that your ingredients and what goes into it is not killing people. It's not going to do long-term damage. You know, you can't just, you know, make whatever you want and just sell whatever you want. And that's exactly the same thing in the way in which we should be looking at the algorithms is that, you know, if you create an algorithm where no one knows what's got into it, why shouldn't some authority be looking into it and, you know, regulating and checking that it's all ethical and it's not going to do long-term damage? Absolutely someone should be. I mean, while, while I kind of like, you know, love the public to be more kind of aware and conscious about things and to make more of a, of a point... I think it's, you know, it's, it's too complex for people to really understand, you know, the potential of the problem in a sense. So I think you need um, an, an authority that has permission to, to regulate and check in terms of what's going into these codes. That makes I sense. I, I do see that, I sort of see that. Well, who do we think could be the authority, though? That's where I think it becomes quite problematic. So... I do think the GDPR parallel is a pretty poignant one in terms of, Lou, as you mentioned, it was triggered by a tipping point where people, where the public realised credit card data is leaking, we're getting stalked around the internet, you know, enough's enough. So we have to reach that tipping point. And unfortunately, in the case of GDPR, it required, you know, hundreds of thousands of people having their credit cards leaked onto the internet. The other thing, I was looking at GDPR as a sort of inspiration point to prepare for this podcast. The first time it was mentioned in the European Union was 2011. <laughs> it took so long to move through the European Parliament. So that's the other barrier that we're going to have to address here is like, this is not a short term game. And having public support behind this lobbying is the only thing that's going to keep momentum. Yeah, so I think that we need to um, to, to look at places uh, like Experian and credit scores and what's happening there. And I think the evolution of what's happening there in terms of what these companies are doing is they're giving you a lot more insight into what your score is, but also what you can do to improve your score or why it's falling short of where you might want it to be. And I think that's the information and the insight that we really need uh, that can really make the difference because if you uh, suddenly found out from Experian that actually the advice was, oh, yeah, to improve your credit score, you need to be more white male, then that's it. The reaction will be clear. Everyone would, you know, white white male, uh, you'd be like, hang on a minute, that's completely wrong. Let's investigate this company. Let's change that. You know, that, that could not exist if that was the, uh, the advice that came through. But the reality is what we're saying here is, is that if, if we did have an Experian version of the algorithm for so many different things, it would be, and if it was telling you exactly what it knew about the algorithm, it would start to say things like that, which would be shocking to everyone, and it would be it would be, it would be awful. Um, so I think we need to, to try and almost get us get get that in place for so many different algorithms. All right, so I think we've defined the problem pretty well. There are definitely a couple of areas we want to focus on, be it public awareness or legislation, and then also thinking about how we can get more diverse people into the building of and the testing of the algorithms that we're using. So there's a lot to achieve, but let's dive into some solutions. First, we're going to have a think about what we would do if we had zero budget. 
I think that Experian idea is just brilliant that you, you know, you put in your details into something and it basically said, you know, you're not male enough, you're not white enough, you know, you're not educated enough. Because actually, like, we talk a lot about gender and and, and race, but there are so many other things as well, like disability, where you live. So in America, for instance, they have a system where depending on where you live or your postcode is, will determine whether you get a mortgage or not. And it's an old practice that came from actually the days where America was segregated, but it's called red lines. And if you live in a certain district, um, and it's how, unfortunately, in America, they've kept sort of ghettos or areas where deprived people live, because in those areas, people are not allowed to buy their own houses or, or not afforded mortgages. So you can just see how... If you were trying to bring some of these things to the fore, but in a in a way that, you know, you're using money supermarket or go compare and then suddenly you get a little flash up that says something totally like extreme, how that would actually, you know, probably galvanize you to be like, well, hang on a minute, this is not not fair. If you were designing an algorithm that you wanted to be fair and you were taking into account uh, somebody's background, say, for example, whether they were born in, in a into poverty or not a rich area or poor area, would you make that a disadvantage or an advantage for them in terms of the output of what they got? Let's say it was a loan. If, if your objective of giving people money is to increase their chances and opportunity and allow you know, society to become a, get a bit more better for everyone, I guess, then the function of finance in that sense is, you know, how do you program that algorithm to reflect that background? And, and, and I think in terms of, you know, when we get older, when we get to, you know, 18, 25, 35, whatever it is, and we start to apply for these things, there's more data into the equation, isn't there? There's more data about your background, your, what you've done, your education, et cetera. But if you strip it right back, and let's just say, for example, five-year-old kids could, could apply for, for, for loans and things, or, you know, you could set up life in that way, then actually it's interesting to think about, well, what is the weighting then of their, of their where they came from? at that point in time because are you are you are you deliberately saying that actually if you were just born in a bad place then that's it you're screwed you know you, you literally cannot get finance or you say that actually because you're born in a bad place we're going to give you more because you need more to get get catch up because it wasn't your fault that you were born in this bad place and and actually if we don't do it now it's going to, you're going to be lost to society forever so we, we need to correct it now otherwise it's going to be a problem i think it's really interesting when you look at it quite starkly like that in an abstract way and go, are we actually trying to give people who haven't had an opportunity, an advantage to get even, to, for it to be a fair level playing field, or are we actually just trying to keep them where they are? It's almost like using the same tools, but baking in an ethical principle. So that rather than using an algorithm to decide the person most likely to pay back the loan, you use the algorithm to decide the person who's going to gain the most from the loan. Same exactly tech, different conclusion that's it yeah that's I think cool. that I think that's such a a, a great way of, of looking at it unfortunately but with wearing this realistic hat I just don't think that would be a possibility but I would love it to be because I think from my perspective like so much is about opportunity there's a documentary on Netflix about it and it's like nature or nurture and like mm-hmm. in terms of you know people that have been you know uh taken away from their families and 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 then you know had different sort of upbringings and, and what that's meant and they would they were all triplets and twins so they all looked to the same there was no other but it's actually it, it's a really interesting sort of analysis however it all sort of stems on how our, our finance system is sort of like functioning and and unfortunately 
wrongly or rightly, um, they give credit to people in order to sort of start them down this road of um, being dependent and having this relationship. It's, it's unfortunate that they actually want people to not, in some cases, not be able to pay things back and stuff like that. And, and that's that's a tricky situation. But I would love it if there were algorithms that could actually right those wrongs and actually give people affordable payments that they can pay back. So it's like, actually, we can't give you that amount because we can see that you'll end up defaulting in two years, but we'll give you this amount. And then why don't you come back to us in 18 months if you've paid it back and we might be able to give you the rest or something like that. One of the other things that I've just kind of like thought about, which could be, I think, quite interesting is what if we use kind of blockchain and NFT technology to uh, credit the algorithm and who makes the algorithm, the parts of the algorithm? So, you know, one of the kind of the, the brilliant things about this kind of madness that is NFT is that it is a record, a digital record of, of something and it stays there. So for things like royalties and rights and stuff like that, that's where it gets exciting in terms of, you know, this kind of digital record of actually it was created by this person. It's been used X amount of times. It's gone around the world. You know, you know, this kind of track of you know, this ledger of everything. Yeah. And, and what if the code actually, you know, we were trying to make you know, celebrities out of the code makers that, that make the code that is solving some of these issues and these problems. So, you know, this idea of like protecting your IP and, you know, and, and having this kind of algorithm that's secret. Well, it's, it's, I guess it's probably not so much of a problem if you know that if someone uses your code, you still get credit for it. Or if someone steals this little part, you still get payment for it. And, and I think that kind of blockchain technology can probably be, be, be used for that. But also if, if suddenly the, the incentive and the celebrities of code are the ones that are solving some of these really complex issues, or, or let's say the, the unfair issues, they're not necessarily always that complex, but it's just like, you know, well, no one's decided to, you know, put a load of, you know, like black faces into this kind of facial recognition thing to actually make it fair. So the person that does that and goes, actually, hang on a minute, you know, I'm going to put in a bit of code that actually, you know, recognizes this, and it's going to be better than the code that existed before in this algorithm. That person gets the credit, that person gets the long term credit, everyone that suddenly wants to use that code which they should be uh still have to give the royalties and the rights to this original creator we make it a bit gamify the you know solving the problems in a sense but but have a an accurate technology-led system like you know the blockchain nft type system to actually track and report who's doing what i love this it's it reminds me of um a system in chile where they have a ton of earthquakes in chile and the architects of buildings are liable to go to prison if the buildings they build come down during an earthquake and it's it's this accountability of the architect this idea that you build something you put your name to it and then you're proud of the results you know it's pretty extreme the the, the, the system in Chile but I do think that that idea of accountability to the creator and like you say making it something they can be proud of that's a wonderful idea and it complements open source, which is the other element of this brief, right? It's like empowering people to see where the bias is. Now, I think it might be worth turning our attention to the million dollar question, right? Now we have unlimited funds and um, let's think about how we would approach this problem. I've been thinking about the parallels of GDPR and thinking about how, you know, algorithms that affect our livelihood, our safety or our liberty should go through, through an independent ethical review and should be something that is controlled and regulated by the government. So fundamentally, I'm thinking of a lobbying campaign. 
But I want to kick it off with a PR stunt. And I want that PR stunt to be across Parliament's summer recess. So we take the months over summer where the MPs will go on holiday to Barbados or whatever, and we build an AI of each member of Parliament. So every single one has an AI persona, right? A Twitter profile, a Facebook profile. um, And they use this AI to make decisions about political issues based on historical decisions of that MP. And we can create a sort of storytelling narrative over the summer. Things can start to escalate. The decisions get bigger and graver and more serious. And we could even partner with, say, the BBC, and we could have deep fake videos of these AI MPs on the Andrew Marr show or on the One show. You know, and, and, and at the end of the summer catastrophe has struck all of these ais have made terrible terrible decisions and the message to the public is we wouldn't let ai rule our society why do we let them dictate our finances and our freedom i love it i love it i think it's phenomenal it's such a it's such a great idea and i definitely think it's like it really will bring alive to people what the problems with all of this are um in a way that's so relatable during the recess or, or something like that, that's a, a perfect time, but you could use stuff that's really pertinent. So it could be about, you know, the Northern Irish, Irish border and, and what they would do about that. Or, you know, if we were going to look back in the time, you know, using political matters like Brexit, if we'd used AI to do that based on historical events, would that have happened? Would it have not? And I think that would bring it into people's public consciousness and then obviously start this revolution that I'm, I'm keen to start. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, Amy, you've started off such a high bar that um, I, I, I think we could probably just quit there. But no, we're not <laughs> going to. I, I'm, you know, I, I totally love that idea. And uh, I'm just going to deliberately throw something else in as a thought and as a concept. Again, on the Bezos budget of, you know, if, if money didn't matter. What I would do is I would um, get a coalition of uh, good companies that, you know, want to do the right thing, but potentially have algorithms in their, in their making that are not necessarily making the right choices. During uh, Black History Month, I would deliberately change the algorithm to reverse the bias, <laughs> inverse the bias. So deliberately bias against white males, let's say, for example, okay. and uh, and give them the you know the output that we historically know is given to let's say black males or females or, or you know people with uh, less advantage to present the 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 alternate kind of reality for people which is, a, is a very much a reality for other people. And then just um, see the complaints come in. Um, but almost like through experiencing it, then people probably realise how, how significant a potential issue it is. And I guess it's a bit like, I mean, this is, this is you know, this is not necessarily right, but it's a bit like, you know, if you were doing stop and search, you know, and you completely tried to reverse the numbers and deliberately stopped, you know, the opposite uh, race mm-hmm. that many times or whatever else. Else, then you know you, you you start to balance things out in terms of people's empathy for the problem I guess in terms of why it is potentially a bit more of a problem it's so hard to create empathy for racial equality or racial justice or, or gender because we don't have experience of anything other than our own experience so it's it's so difficult to create that empathy and actually what you've described is such a rare opportunity to help people walk in another's shoes it's a really tangible way of doing that so what the idea that I have, actually, because you guys have both focused on ideas that, you know, go uh, sort of look at the public. So I thought I'd have an idea about um, a sort of a campaign that sort of 
focus is on the developers. So because we kind of spoke about how we don't know what's going on with these algorithms and it's all a bit of a black box. But obviously, if you're a developer for uh, like a big tech company, when you, um, you know, join that company, you sign like all your sort of whatever you create for that company is is owned by them. So it's really difficult for you to sort of therefore then be going around sort of like, you know, it is their proprietary um, uh, tech now, even though you created it. But what if we created more of like a whistleblower platform? that we funded right and we had sort of a, an area where people could go to anonymously and basically call out the bias right and they can be like in you know i work for blah 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 in this system this piece of code does x i flagged it with my boss but nobody said anything about it this is what it does rah, rah, rah. they kind of uncover the script but it's all covert and it's all sort of anonymous right so that we can then and I don't know what we do with this information from all this whistleblowers, right? We need to try and work out what we do with it. But I was just thinking, because my issue is, is that there's so much of this that's under the radar in the black box. So we need to uncover the black box. and But we need to do that from actually speaking to the developers, working with the ones that actually, you know, care about this stuff and do want to make change and, and, and sort of uncovering what is going on. Um, and then working out what we do with that and whether that forms some type of um, like a bigger campaign or it, it involves some type of, I don't know why, I feel like I want to do some type of vigilante movement. I've gotten very sort of like militant with what I'm doing here. Just not very me. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But yeah, that's my idea. It's not really that formed out, but it's some way of uncovering the code and having some type of tech platform that, you know, is anonymous and can tell you what the issues with certain algorithms of big companies and big corps are and then we need to lobby them once we find that out type thing have you been hanging out in the ecuadorian embassy with your friend edward snowden (laughs) i wish i'd love to be a fly on the wall over there This is such a great idea. Mobilize the people within the system that want to change it from within. Yeah, like just start. A re- I, I've got this thing about a revolution. I feel like there needs to be an algorithm revolution and um, it needs to come in in, in multiple forms. Um, so we have to think about all the audiences that might be affected and then galvanize them all in their own sort of uh, lanes, I suppose. Uh, but all funneling up to this overarching sort of goal of like, fairness like it just should be fair um but it's sad because the world's not but it but it should be well i feel like some of our ideas today have helped right some of those wrongs maybe or at least it's got me pumped up and fired up and ready to go i think you this is such a complex issue but it feels a little bit more tangible having talked it over with you guys for the last 40 minutes or so And I hope our audience feels the same. I mean, if you're listening in and you're screaming at your phone saying there's an idea that we haven't thought of, then please get in touch. Please join in. Or indeed, if there's an issue that you think we could address next week, then let us know. We'll put all the LinkedIn profiles of Dino, myself and Lou in the show notes so you can connect with us and um, keep chatting. Thank you so much for listening. Dino, Lou, thank you for joining today. And uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Amy.